Well, for the last several weeks, we have uh, been going on a journey through the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is a challenging book to get through. Uh, There is a lot of blood, a lot of warfare, uh, battles and conquests and taking of the land. And so uh, it's not the prettiest book to to get through. Um, But it's also been very eye-opening for us as well. As we look at the stories that are presented to us and then see these parallels with our our life with Christ, the life that we have uh, through him. And so in chapter 1, we looked at the call of Joshua where he is commanded to be strong and courageous. And we need to be reminded so much as we step up against these struggles in our lives to be strong and courageous. That there is a battle going on. And then in chapter 2, we have this picture of of Rahab sheltering the spies. And Rahab, an outsider, is the one who gives the people of Israel this hopeful message that you will be able to take the lands. That you will be successful in the conquest of Jericho. God is going to give it to you. And then we have this great power of God demonstrated through the crossing of the Jordan. And Joshua sets up these 12 stones to remember the amazing work that God has done, the amazing things that he's done, and how important it is for us to remember what God has done. What has he done in our lives? What has he done for the people of God, uh, both in our stories but in the history as well? And then we get to the Battle of Jericho where the most ridiculous battle plan is laid out where they just go for a walk blowing trumpets. And in this, the city is... And so today we get to Joshua chapter 7, uh, one of the more difficult stories that we're going to get to. And so if you want to be opening up your Bible to Joshua chapter 7, of course it is Family Worship Sunday, so we're going to try to structure this in a way that is uh, somewhat not offensive to the young ears of the crowd. Uh, And kiddos, I want to encourage you to listen. Uh, Listen to what is going on here. And we're going to start... Listen. Good. All right. I want you to focus in, all of us, we need to be reminded to listen. Um, And so we're going to zoom back out and get an overview of all of Joshua by watching a video from the Bible Project. This is going to be about an eight-minute overview of the entire book. So we've been down in the trenches of it. Now we're going to step way out and look at Joshua as a whole, which is going to give us a helpful perspective. Primarily, I want us to listen to why is there so much warfare Why does it seem to be so bloodthirsty? So let's watch this as we get an overview of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. 
So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in, and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups, and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai, and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. Now, the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. 
This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything to breathe. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So, for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, 
Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. All right, so zoom out and give a a picture of all of Joshua, and then we're going to zoom back in and look at chapter 7. As we, as we look at what is going on in these battles, what, what is God up to? Uh, as we go through these narratives, we have to remember that it is a story of God in action. God is the main character. God is the one moving. It isn't a story about the Israelites and, and their power. It's not about the Israelites and their uh, great military conquest. The story is about the movement of God. And anything that the Israelites receive is just a gift. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. It's just a gift. And so if they're going to get the land that God has promised them, uh, they're going to have to be fully obedient. They're going to have to walk in obedience to what God has commanded them to do. But, But sin enters into the picture. Sin comes in and it divides the people of God. Sin is about separating us from God and even uh, dividing them from each other and creating problems within the community. And so chapter 7 starts rather bluntly. Let's look at verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Ahan, or Achan, son of Carmi, and all of these other tribes, he took some of them. So now these devoted things are the things that they collected from Jericho. And the command was that everything that is taken from Jericho is to be given to God, is to go into the treasury of God. And so Achan has stolen from God. He has taken what has belonged to God. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. This is a great introduction to a story, right? The Israelites were unfaithful. Achan took devoted things. God's anger burned against them. So we we have just come from this incredible victory in Jericho. Things are going great, but now God's anger is burning towards the Israelites. Uh, Things are not going well. They're now divided from God. But here's the kicker. The people, and even Joshua, have absolutely no idea what's going on. They're, They're unaware that this offense has occurred. And so we continue in verse 2. Now Joshua sent the men of Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied it out. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against them. We've got this. Send two or three thousand men to take it and do not worry about the whole army for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were, they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So they come to the city. They are confident in their abilities to win, and they're chased away. And they go running, scared. They think this should be an easy one, but they suffer this humiliating defense, and the people's morale is completely devastated. 
Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The, the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now what now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So they're surprised by this. And there's such despair as they come into this defeat. God, why did you take us over here? How quickly they forget the mighty actions of God. And the promises of God. Have you just brought us here to kill us? And so this setback is overwhelming for them. But then God responds. He, he tells them why they've been defeated. He tells them what's going on within their camps. That, that their defeat is because of sin. It's because there has been a breach of covenants. And so this is why they have been defeated. Picking up in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Be a little more confident. Know what I promised. Stand up. Israel has sinned. Notice it's all of Israel that has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever wrong, uh, destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord your God, Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe, of the, the, tribe the Lord chooses will come forward clan by clan. And, and the clan the Lord chooses shall be co come forward family by family. And the family and the... Lord, the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He's violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so God tells them how they're going to find out who is guilty. And so the next few verses describe this scene of coming tribe by tribe and clan by clan, clan and family by family and finally getting down to, to the man Achan who has stolen these devoted things. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Here's your opportunity to confess. What have you done? And he replies, It's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in plunder, in the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted. I saw and I coveted, and then I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tents with the silver underneath. 
So Joshua sends out people to go to Achan's tent and finds the devoted things and takes those devoted things and brings them back to the people. Achan and his family and all of his possessions are then stoned and burned and then rocks are piled on top of them. And this is their punishment for stealing from God. The punishment for the sin that he's committed. But then the story concludes with this powerful line. It says, Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. The Lord turned from his fierce anger. And then chapter 8, which we're not going to get into today, and we're not going to get into next week as well. We're just going to kind of skip over. Chapter 8 is them going back into battle and then being victorious in their battle now that sin in the camp has been taken care of. And there's a great battle scene there that's, that plays out as they trick people out of, out of the city and come around. And so, so read chapter 8 this afternoon as you're uh, eating lunch or something. But So there's several things that this story confronts us with. As we go through the story, it, it, it's, it's difficult to process because there is this there's this sin that's committed and this, this incredibly uh, harsh punishment that's dealt out. And it's hard for us to connect with stories like this, right? But as we have seen over the last several chapters, there is actually a lot for us to connect with in the book of Joshua. And so the first thing it confronts us with is the dark side of sin. The dark side of sin. Sin is something that we don't really like to talk about too much. Because to talk about sin means that we have to be judgmental, that we have to be harsh, that we have to define what is a sin and what is not a sin. And we don't like to do that. We don't like to point out what is a sin. Achan's sin was to steal what was God's, to take what God had set aside. And in his confession, he explains exactly what happened. He saw, he coveted, and he took and so there's, there's this, this sinfulness to what he's done because it is something that was consecrated to God, these devoted things that were, were for God, and he takes them anyway. And so oftentimes we avoid talking about sin because we don't want to, to get into the judgment of what is right and wrong. But sin is us being divided from God. It's this breach of covenant relationship with God. That, that we are in relationship with God, but, but sin separates us from that. And we're no longer in a right relationship with him. And so sin manifests itself in lots of different ways. But ultimately, at its root, sin is a heart condition. It is about what is going in our hearts. And that's what makes it difficult for us to define and judge what is and is not sin because it is something within the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that, that, that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's a pretty, pretty desperate statement there. Who can understand the heart? There's no cure for it. But that's where destruction comes from. Jesus traces all human sin back to the heart, sinful acts of uh, um, evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. In Matthew 15, he, he says all of those are a heart condition. So sin is about the condition of the heart. And so as we look at the sin of Achan and this dark side of sin, what are comparable sins for us today? 
For him, it was keeping, himself, keeping for himself things that belonged to God, things that had been declared for God's purposes and God's exclusive property. And so he keeps them for himself. And so what are the things that God today claims to be his own? What, what are the things that are his? Well, the Psalms tell us that everything is his. All things belong to God. All of creation belongs to God. And so when we use anything out of God's design, out of God's will, then it's sin. And so he has designed things and given things to us in in certain ways, and so we have to use those for his purposes. And when we don't use those for his purposes, it's sin. And so when we take something that's his, take something that he has designed for us, and use it for our own gain and for our own purposes outside of his will and outside of our relationship with him, it is showing that we do not trust him to use what he has given us in the way that he's designed. And so to not trust God is a breach of our covenant relationship with God. We're no longer trusting him, and we're now divided from him because we're using it for ourselves. And so I think of poor stewardship as, the, as, as a real example of this, that, that we are all given certain time, talent, and treasure to steward. We have certain things that God has given us and he has blessed us with and he has gifted us with. And so are we selfishly hoarding those things for our own uh, for our own benefits? Are we hoarding our time? Are we hoarding our talents? Are we hoarding our, our treasures? This, is, this robs God of the things that belong to him. Those time, talent, and treasures belong to him. And when they're used in selfish ends, we're squandering what God has given to us. And so are we being good stewards of what he's given to us? Sin is a big part of, of our relationship or lack of relationship with God. And so if we're going to address sin in our lives at at, at any level, we really have to follow a simple pattern of of confession and truth-telling and accountability. Confession, truth-telling, and accountability. We have to trust each other enough to be able to confess to each other. Now, it doesn't mean we have to get up here and confess to all of us. But we need to be in relationships with others and with other believers that has a level of trust where we can confess to one another what's going on. James commands us to confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. That if you're going to be healed from the brokenness of your sin, there has to be confession. I've heard it said that where there is no confession, there is no transformation. That if we will not confess the things that are going on in our lives, there will not be transformation around those things. And so when we engage in confession, it brings this huge sense of relief. It it empowers others to, to walk along with us in those situations and begins the steps of healing. And so do we have relationships with others that we are trusting enough to confess to each other? But then on the flip side of that, we also have to have relationships where we can tell each other the truth. And telling, confession is telling the truth about what our own sin is, but truth-telling in other relationships is us speaking the truth in love to others. 
That are we in the kinds of relationships with each other where we can speak truth about what's going in on in their lives? Can we be a source to identify what is not going well in someone's life? Now, this certainly requires relationship. But are we in the kinds of relationships, are we investing in those kind of relationships where we can tell one another the truth? To say, this is how I see you treating people. This is how I see you behaving. This is how I see you spending your time, your talents, and your treasure. Those are not comfortable conversations. How many of you are in line to have that conversation with somebody? Yes, please, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. We avoid those, right? And I'm afraid that we avoid those because we're not investing in in the kinds of Christ-centered relationships that we should be investing in. And that's why we're, we're putting such a heavy emphasis on growing in life groups. Now, life groups certainly are not the place to confess everything, but they are a first place to start confessing things and to discover and form relationships with people that you can get even closer to to then have the real conversations of confession and truth-telling. And then the third thing is holding each other accountable. Each of these work together, that if there is a relationship where I can confess, if there is a relationship where you can tell me the truth about who I am and what I'm doing, then there is a relationship where we can hold each other accountable. That we can say, this is what God is calling me to. This is how I can be more Christ-like. This is, this is where I'm falling short of glorifying God. Can you help me through this? And so we hold one another accountable through that. For me, the place that I've seen this work the most is in a group of men that I met with for years uh, every Monday morning at 6 a.m. And we would spend an hour and a half together talking to one another, confessing to one another, praying with one another, challenging one another to be better men, to be better Christ followers, to be better dads and husbands. And so having those kinds of relationships where you are completely honest with one another are so critical to experiencing the grace of God in our own lives and experiencing that transformation. The second thing that this story really confronts us with is this mystery of unity. This mystery of unity. So we, we have this, this darkness of sin and, and dealing with sin and confession and accountability. But then we have this mystery of unity because the story starts off, off saying, Israel has sinned. There's this collective viewpoint that everyone is responsible for what Achan has done. This is a community sin. This is something that impacts everybody. And so this is, this is difficult for our minds to wrap around. Why is Israel blamed for the crime? Why does Israel suffer defeat? And why are lives lost because of his sin? Why does Achan's whole household get burned up and buried because of his sin? There's this corporate connection with everybody. And so for us, this does not match our idea of justice. This does not match our idea of of what is right or wrong. Uh, Modern readers see this as being unfair because our modern individualistic mindsets, our individualistic worldviews, our rugged individualism that we're so proud of gets in the way of this. 
Because in the Bible, it comes from a view that is corporate and collectivistic. That is what the Bible describes, is how we're connected to one another. And so statements like, it's my body, I can do what I want. Or, it's not my business what other people do. Statements like that very loudly scream individualism. This is just about me, the individual. And my choices, and my actions, and my decisions, and the sin in my life has no ripple effect on anybody else. This is the attitude of our culture. Young people, this is what is being taught to you at school, on social media, that you as an individual is all that matters. And this is a lie. This is a lie. Because what we see in Scripture is a God who designs community. A God who designs a collective group. A God who who has a, a specific plan and purpose for everyone fitting together. And so the individualistic view that says my actions, my choices, they don't impact others is not what the Bible describes as how we are to live life. How God sees the world is a corporate perspective, a collective perspective. It's not individuals, but a collective humanity. There is diversity, but theologically, God regards humanity as one single group. That is one collective whole. Ephesians 5, uh, Paul urges us to love just as Christ loved the church. Not as he loved individuals, but as the church. He gave himself up for her, the whole. Jesus gives himself up for the church, for the world. John 3.16 says, God loved the world that he gave his only son. In Romans, Paul says that disobedience of one person makes all the many sinners. But at the same time, through one person's obedience, through Jesus' obedience, one man, him, the many are made righteous. The image is further played out as we think about how Paul describes the body of Christ, that we are a body. We are one single organism. We are not a corporation. We're not a nonprofit 501c3, even though that's our legal definition. We are an organism. And the body is diverse, made up of lots of different parts, lots of different people, lots of different genders, lots of different identities, lots of different uh, races and ethnic backgrounds and economic statuses. We're all in this diverse body that come together as one. And that unity is a bit mind-blowing because in that unity if if we stub our toe the entire body really is upset when i'm when i'm like walking through the nursery at night trying to get to hope who's crying and i stub my toe on that fan that got left in the middle of the floor my whole body is reacting to that (laughs) tongue and all (laughs) and so The body is impacted by the individual parts and the decisions that we make and the mistakes that we make and the sin that is allowed to continue on. And so this, it's my body, yes, is true. It's my body. 
this entire body. And Joshua and the Israelites were completely oblivious to the sin that was going on in their body. But they faced the consequences of it. And so it may not be real clear to you how your actions are connected to the body, but they are. Because we're an organism that is connected together. So when it comes to sin, the sin of one does have an impact on all, even if it's not visibly seen or understood. And so this connects us back to the beginning of confession of sin. It not only heals the individual, but confession of sin heals the body as well. And so I'm not saying that every sin needs to be confessed to the entire body. We're not going to start rolling people up here and, and, and confessing to the whole group. But, but that process of, of confession and truth-telling and accountability in those relationships within this body is critical to the healing and health of this body. And so the impact of Achan's sin was not just limited to him alone. It had ripple effects throughout the entire community. And then the final thing that this story confronts us with is the God of no grudges. And this is where the story turns to this beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness. That even in the midst of this story of sin, even though we face the darkness of sin squarely, when we do that, we will see and truly appreciate the marvelous grace and forgiveness that we receive through Christ. That if I'm able to confront the sin in my life and really identify that there is sin and that there is darkness, then I will appreciate so much more the forgiveness that I have received. There's God's anger in verse 1, but it ends in verse 26. His anger ended. God's reassurance to Joshua is to not be afraid, to not be discouraged, that they will be victorious in battle. That the sin has been dealt with and we're moving on into great victory. There was bloodshed to, to resolve the sin. And now that the bloodshed has occurred, we can move on in victory. So God shows this incredible act of mercy. He shows this incredible act of forgiveness. The book of Micah ends this way. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgiveness, the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. This is the God of the Old Testament that says, I delight in showing mercy. The God of Israel in the story of Achan, delights in showing mercy. Continuing, it says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. God is a God of forgiveness. Who is a God like our God? No one. There is no God like our God. And so through Jesus, our guilt is taken away. We are forgiven. And we find it difficult to, to really embrace forgiveness, 
but we are forgiven. If we will understand what sin is and the division from God that occurs in that sin, we will, we will appreciate so much more the grace that we've been given. And so thankfully, today, we are not being called out tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, person by person, to identify which of you is a sinner. It's not on the agenda for today. Thank God. Right? Because the bloodshed has already occurred for that. Through the cross and the death of Jesus, the bloodshed for our sin that we deserve Have any of us sinned less than Achan? We deserve death. We need to be taken out back and stoned, burned, and piled under rocks is what we deserve. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's stand. The story of Achan is a story of sin, but it is also a story of infinite forgiveness, a story of a God who forgives. And we, we receive forgiveness, we, we experience forgiveness. As the song says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it. All of it is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And so we have this incredible promise given to us. That if we will confront the darkness of sin, if we will stand in unity with one another and together, if we will support one another in that confession and that healing, if we will remember what it is that God has done for us. Uh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And so I want to invite you into this time of prayer, this time of song, this time of worship, as we remember the grace that we've been given. And so this is a time where you can pray with one another. It's a time that you can, can gather together as a life group, as a family, to, to spend time in prayer or in time of prayer through this song and singing these words. Let's pray.